Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we want to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, may we say with the psalmist, with our whole heart, we seek you. Let us not wonder from your commandments. God, please, I pray, help us. Help us in this moment to be humble enough to listen. Help us to not come in thinking about how someone else needs to change. But right now in this moment, change us. Please, work in our hearts. Undo our pride. Please give us desires for you and desires to love even those who are hard to love. For that's who we are apart from grace. So in this moment, take your word, drive it deep into our soul that we might not just be gathering information, but we would be meeting with you, the person, the living God who promises to change and to rescue. Would you please cause us to apply your word to our hearts so that we don't leave here the same. Get glory in this moment. Anoint your word. Love these people, I pray, in this moment. Give me a fresh word in this moment, I ask. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Impossible is a pretty big word. It means something cannot be done. However, when we use the word impossible, we don't regularly use it that way. We, we rarely use it as it's intended. Many times we'll say, well, it's impossible, meaning it's not likely. It's impossible that out of the top four undefeated teams in college football, which I'm a college football fan, as well as an NFL fan, I just like sports in general, that three of the top four undefeated teams would lose. That hasn't happened in 30 years. It's impossible. Oh, wait, it happened last night. Okay? You might think it's impossible that Duke is going to beat UNC in football. And sure enough, you Tar Heels got spanked. So there's a sense where, sorry if that was a little too pressing. Um, those of you who are Pac fans were just happy. So, um, Whenever we think about impossible, I literally said this before the Republican primaries. I said, it'll be, there's no way that Trump is going to win. No way. I'm a bad prophet. Um, for this week was filled with what many of uh, our members, one member called emotional exhaustion. It is just filled with all kinds of inner turmoil and discussions and articles and banter back and forth on all social media and you just can't go anywhere without hearing it. I was in several coffee shops this week and every one of them there was a conversation going on about what was going on. What seemed to be impossible all of a sudden happened. But it really wasn't impossible, right? I mean, there was a, there was a chance that man could make it happen. When the Bible uses impossible, they use it as it is meant to be used. That is, man cannot do it. Specifically speaking, man could not produce its own redeemer, as one man says. We couldn't do it. We could not fix our own problem. So in this passage in Luke 1, what we see is God needing to insert himself in human history because of the wreck we've made of the world. And he says, I am going to do the impossible. I'm going to do what you cannot do. Because as it says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's what we want to take away from this moment. The impossible becomes possible when the Savior shows up on the scene. And so when we look at Luke 1, it's the third sermon in our series. We encourage you to stick with us. We'll be in it for quite a while, probably over a year, going through the entire book of Luke. But as we look at this, 
What we want to look at in verses 26 through 38 today is answering the question, how? How Jesus came and how is that to give us hope when we feel things are impossible or when things really are impossible? How Jesus came affects our hope in the midst of the impossible. So there are four things this passage shows us about the coming of our Savior. Number one, our Savior came limited. It's an adjective to describe our Savior. He came limited. Two, our Savior came through a virgin birth. Our Savior came through a virgin birth. Three, our Savior came to establish a forever, not a temporary, not an every four years, but a forever kingdom. And our Savior came as one worthy of our surrender, of our full submission, our very lives. Remember the question. How the Savior came affects how we hope in the midst of the impossible. Whether it's a feeling of impossible or whether it is genuinely impossible. There is hope because our Savior came. So when you face a hard-hearted friend or spouse, when you're looking at a rebellious child, when you look at the loss of a job and massive bills, when you are experiencing a physical trial, whenever you are the recipient of unjust criticism or a bleak situation or the loss of a dear friend, a relationship rift, and you are tempted to say, nothing can ever fix this. God wants to be known as the God who can do the impossible. But He also wants you to know, because He can do the impossible, He will not always fix things. But He will do what's even more impossible. That is, a holy God always dwelling with sinful man by faith. So that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you should fear no evil because your God is with you. There is hope because our Savior came. So let's dive in. Number one, our Savior came and He came limited. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, what's He talking about? It's actually the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth who was just mentioned in the previous passage. There was a priest named Zechariah. His wife's name was Elizabeth. She was in the line of the priesthood. And they were told in their old age that they would have a child. Zechariah says, no way, no how. Struck mute. Couldn't talk for a long time. That's how you get when you question God, I guess. It's like, okay, I'm going to show you that I can keep my word. So Zechariah began to believe God at that moment. And now we read in verse 24, After these days, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. We don't know why, but here's what we do know, is now in the sixth month enters our story in verse 26. Verse 26 says it's in the sixth month that there's a, some other scene that's happening. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, whenever a biblical Israelite would read Nazareth, the nose would act like they just smelled something stanky. It was, that's not good. It's like if you live in South Carolina and I mentioned south of the border, all of a sudden you're like, huh, really? Can anything good come out of that? Right? I lived in East Tennessee is where I grew up, lived a lot of places, but lived in East Tennessee growing up, and there was one such place, and it was affectionately called by residents as the armpit of the, of the Smoky Mountains, and that was Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg. Now, many people go there for vacations. I, I, I've gone there as well, but I'm just telling you, it has the same kind of stench for those who live around there as south of the border does for those in South Carolina. It's just like, really? Really? 
that good's going to come out of there. Well, that's how Nazareth was treated. And we get this in John chapter 1, verse 46. Nathanael, one who Jesus appears to, says this about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can just see like, ugh, that is nasty, Nazareth. Like, really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here's what Philip says. Why don't you come and see? Something can good. Something good can come out of, not can goods, something good can come out of Nazareth. There's a reason he came to Nazareth. The reason he came to a town that was despised. He was going to be one that was said in Isaiah, despised and rejected by men. There was a reason he came to a small town. It was a town that had anywhere between 200 and 1,600 residents. My high school was bigger than that. That's where the Savior of the world was going to grow up. It's where his mom and daddy were from. And we see coming on the scene that although he was going to be born in Bethlehem, known for its smallness, he was going to be raised in a town that was despised. And we look at his ministry and what happened. He was in one town at a time. He couldn't heal everybody at once. He was limited in what he could do. He came limited in a small town. Why did he do that? Why did God choose to do it that way? Seriously, it is at the core of the gospel as to why he did it that way. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is built upon this type of upside-down thinking. Namely, it is the lowly that are exalted. It's not the competent, it's not the strong, it's not the proud, it's not the one who can tell you that they can do something. The lowly are exalted all throughout the Bible. Just listen. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, the arrogant, the ones who boast about their self-sufficiency and how they've got it all together. He opposes them. The world esteems them. He opposes them and gives grace to the humble, to the lowly and contrite. He goes on to say that this is God's economy. He draws near to the lowly, to the repentant, Isaiah 57, 15. Here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That is, they acknowledge that they are wrong. They acknowledge that God is greater than they are, and they trust him. God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He revives the spirit of the lowly. He revives the heart of the contrite. It's upside-down thinking. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the essence of Christianity. I cannot do it. Any sense of leaning on I can do it is leaning on a broken crutch that will give way and it will exhaust you. The gospel is give way to your self-sufficiency. And surrender all that you are to a beautiful Savior who did what you could not do. Man could not produce their own Redeemer. God entered in and He came. He came limited. Just continue to listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I'm going to talk about my limits. I don't know everything. I can't be everywhere for everyone. I can't do everything. Other people do things better than I do. I'm going to talk that way because in my weaknesses, Christ's strength is made perfect. He gets the glory and I don't. It's upside down, topsy-turvy, and it is the baseline for Christianity. My son this week, he had to get a baseline test for 
uh, a concussion. He's playing some basketball, and they needed, he didn't get his nugget knocked up. He just was, needed to get a baseline. And so what you do is you go in and you take this test, and it basically, it's not telling you how smart you are. It's just telling you what you can remember when you're your brain is functioning okay. So you get this baseline test so that when you're whacked upside the head and you can't see straight, all of a sudden you're trying to discern, can you answer these questions? And where there's a gap between the baseline and how you're functioning, they will assess whether you have a concussion or not. What I'm articulating right now is baseline Christianity. It is the foundation. It is what every person who claims Christ must hold to. The insufficiency of man and the sufficiency of Jesus. The glory of prizing being limited and glorifying Him for being fully sufficient and perfect. It is boasting in weakness so that His strength can shine brightly. That's the baseline. And then when the swirling world around us knocks us upside the head and suffering hits us, what we need to be reminded of is that God prizes the ones who can't figure it out. He draws near to the ones who says, I am sorry, I should not have done that. And he gets near to the ones who say, I must be still and dwell with my God because I do not have the resources on my own strength. It's baseline, friends. And God is meeting us, telling us the story of Him coming to a broken people to tell us that our Savior came limited. He came limited to teach us the true message of the gospel. And I think it could be summarized this way. Humble beginnings and humiliating endings change the world. Humble beginnings and humiliating endings can change the world. Do not despise your story. Do not despise the ups and downs and the brights and the darks of your story. Do not try to live someone else's life. Your story is crafted by the loving hand of God. Even the very fact that you are here in this moment is because God loves you. And His story for you is not try to be someone else and try to be someone else's story, but to be who God has made you in the moment that you are in. Don't try to be the whole body. Be a part of it. Prize your humble beginnings. Prize the fact that you came from a small town. It's okay that you don't know everything that everybody else does. It's okay that some people have more than you have. We have so much to learn from one another. That is the point of the gospel. We've got to stop being arrogant and crafting that this is the aim and say, we want to prize what Jesus prized, and that is when diversity relates in harmony both ethnically and economically and educationally, when we all messes come together, we're unified and we make much of Him by boasting in our weakness, being who we're supposed to be and letting Him be who He is. Jesus came in humble beginnings and He had a humiliating ending and it changed the world. It will happen for us as well. Let's don't despise it. So our Savior not only came limited, but He also came through a virgin birth. Let's look at verse 27. Here He says this, now the angel Gabriel, he came, he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And verse 27, he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now let's track this line of thinking. To a virgin means, there's a couple words that uh, could be used here. Uh, the word that's used here for a virgin means she has not had sexual relations with a man And betrothed means that she has a legal binding agreement that would be considered basically marriage only separated by divorce. And yet they haven't officially had the ceremony and the feast and consummated the relationship. This betrothment was grander than our contextual engagement. It was a commitment that was only separated by divorce. That's what she was in with Joseph. So she had not had sexual relations with him, but they would enter into this commitment, many times arranged for them, 
enter into this commitment to show a season of fidelity and faithfulness, and then they would have some type of formal proclamation with witnesses and a feast and consummate the relationship. So she had not had sexual relations with a man. She was betrothed to this man whose name was Joseph, and he was of the house of David. Now that's going to be important. It's actually one of Luke's main points, is that the Savior is going to come through the house of David. But that's not what we're going to hone in right now. Right now we're going to look at the Savior came through a virgin birth. Now let's look at what he says. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, let's don't neuter this too much. Every time an angel appears on the screen, it basically makes people wet their pants, okay? This is serious. This is not some fluffy angel bunny with, you know, wings and nice clout. This is a scary individual, okay? This is why what we see later, verse 30, do not be afraid, okay? Greetings is a very... Just tame way of she is caught off guard and she is like, what in the world just happened? Came out of nowhere, boom. Hey, how you doing? The Lord's with you. Okay, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled, I bet she was, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What is going on? Okay, now that's my paraphrase, verse 30. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. This is what angels have to say. Don't be afraid because they're radiant. They have some of the Shekinah of God radiating from them. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It means that God is pouring out grace and help upon her in this moment. She is a recipient of that. She is not a giver of grace. She's a recipient of grace. She was needy. And God poured out grace upon her and met her in this moment. And it says, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, I don't know about you, but the train has just left the tracks if I'm hearing this. I'm a virgin. Well, you know, it's a little not one-to-one. I'm a man, right? Okay, but if I'm hearing this as a woman, you're going to conceive and bear a son? It was clear that this wasn't going to come about naturally. And then he keeps talking. I probably would have been tempted to check out and not even hear the last little bit of what he's saying. Kind of how people do with my sermons. Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, let's just run this way. Okay, here we go. Verse 32, and he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. We'll talk about that later. But here's how Mary responds, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? She's still stuck at how is this going to roll? This is good that I'm going to call him Jesus. He's going to have a forever kingdom. That blows me away, but I'm going to conceive. Let's start there. I'm a virgin. How is that going to happen? She knew what the angel was saying. Something supernatural was going to happen, and she just didn't understand. Now, let's make sure we contrast her question with Zachariah's question. Similarly to how you might contrast, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, how you contrast their two responses. Sarah was told in their old age, like, He's 100, she's in her 80s, that they're going to have a child. When God tells her that, she doesn't believe him. And she is shown to not have faith. When Abraham is told that, he believes and it's counted to him as righteousness. Well, here you have the same kind of contrasting responses. Zechariah asks a question, but it's a question with skepticism. A question filled with unbelief. And so he's struck mute. Mary has a question, but it's a question filled with faith. I trust you, but how's this going to work again? It's not wrong to ask questions. The Psalms are filled with how long, O Lord, and why, why? But there's a huge difference between asking by putting God on trial and asking out of genuine faith. 
saying, I trust you, but I don't know how this is going to work. Help me. And we know this is what happened with Mary because of her response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's a response of faith. How did the angel answer her question? How will I conceive if I'm a virgin? Well, he answers it in verse 35. The angel answered her this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Basically, God's going to do it. And therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. C.S. Lewis says, bird begets bird. People beget people. God begets God. God is begetting His only Son in this virgin. And this is where Mary is left. She is going to be the recipient of a virgin birth. Why is this important? Is it just fancy thinking, trying to stretch the brain early in the morning? Why does this matter? Our Savior came through a virgin birth matters for these reasons. Number one, it reveals the unique, superior beauty of Jesus. The Bible says this, you don't need a pastor or a priest to be your mediator between you and God. You can directly go to Him. Because you're going to go through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, between God and man. There's only one. And there is only one out of the billions and billions of people born. There's only one who has been born this way. Everyone else, man and woman, here, God. It is unique. It is special. He is set apart. And Jesus himself saw this, where do you come from, who is your daddy kind of comment, as important to who he was. Look at him talking in Matthew 22 to some Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees trying to trick him, struggled to believe, filled with skepticism. Here's how they rolled. They said this. Jesus asked him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Who's his daddy? Okay, well, let's answer the question. They said to him, the son of David. That's what the Bible teaches. And he said to them, well, then tell me about this. How does David, in the spirit, call him Lord? And yet David's his daddy? And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Pharisees are like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. And it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> Boom, dropped the mic. There it was. It stands in contrast. To Peter. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Am I John the Baptist? Am I Elijah? Am I a good prophet? What's my heritage? Where did I come from? Peter says this, you are the Christ. The son of the living God is who you are. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh did not reveal this to you. God did. It's a contrast. What we think about God's beginnings matter. What we think about Christ's beginnings matter. And it shows Him as superior, unique, above all other individuals. Number two, it also fulfills Scripture. The virgin birth is important because if it did not happen, God would be a liar and this word would not be trustworthy. First of all, it says it right here in this passage. But second of all, it says it in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. That that's what the Messiah had to do. 
Here's Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That'll rock your world and make your head spin. The virgin, think it through, will conceive. That's what Mary's hearing. And bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Now, although Isaiah 7.14 actually had a fulfillment in its context and day and time, it also was a prophetic word pointing forward that the Messiah was to fulfill. And Jesus is the only one born of a virgin fulfilling this very prophecy. The woman's name was Mary, the virgin, and Jesus was called Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God keeps his word. Number three, the virgin birth is important not only because God keeps his word, but because it shows Jesus to be fully God. It shows Jesus to be fully God. If he was born from two people, there would be no way he is God. Zero. People would try to then say he's a deified man or he is a human God, but that's not what the Scriptures put forth. It is one man. It is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. That hurts your head? Deal with it. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is fully God. And here's a quote from John MacArthur. That's why the virgin birth is so important. He says this, For Jesus to be God, he must be born of God. Joseph, a man, Mary, a woman, cannot produce God. That just makes sense. God cannot be born into this world by natural human processes. There's no way he could be God apart from being conceived by God. And not like some people try to twist it that God had sexual relations. No, verse 35 says, The Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power of the Most High overshadows you and you will conceive. There will be a child there. It is supernatural. It is beautiful. It is mysterious. And it is why Jesus is fully God and the only one who can be our Savior. And it also paves the way for His sinlessness. Because only thing people can produce is sinful human beings. That's what our forefather Adam did. We are sinners by nature because we are in him, and we're sinners by choice. We choose it. Well, Jesus was spared from this because God, his Father, was the one who brought the conception supernaturally by the Holy Spirit to Mary. And therefore, he can be sinless by nature. He is the second Adam, as Romans chapter 5 says. And he is sinless by choice. He was tempted in every way that we were, and yet perfect without sin. That's why he's our Savior. Our whole salvation hinges upon this being true. And so finally it makes sense. God's word is true. His word is true. That's why the virgin birth is important, because it did happen, and therefore it confirms God's word. So... When you're staring down the barrel of something impossible and you feel like there is no way something's going to change. The sin has gripped you too long. There's no way to overcome it. There's no way for a way out of your circumstances. There's, there's just no way that light will shine into darkness. Friends, stare squarely at the virgin birth. It is impossible. Man cannot make that happen. God did. And because nothing is impossible with God, isn't that what is said in verse 37? For nothing will be impossible with God. Then take that with you and use it to make you a prayerful person calling out to God to do what only He can do. Number three, our Savior came he came limited, he came through a virgin birth, and he came to establish a forever kingdom. 
This is what he says in verse 32. Remember I said we'd get back to it. He will be great. Stop there. Our Savior came to establish a forever kingdom. Don't you just wish there was some word or string of words that could do justice to that small little phrase? He is great. He will be great. He has no beginning and he has no end. He has no sin. And yet he voluntarily chose mocking pain, death itself, for sinners who only mocked him. He died the death that we deserve. Three days later, he rose from the grave. All of this was known. He is great. It just seems so small. He is God of very God. He is the Savior of the world. He is fully sufficient. He is the only one that we can sing. He is enough. Your spouse isn't enough. Your roommate's not enough. Your car's not enough. Your paycheck's not enough. There's not one thing on planet earth that is enough. Jesus is enough. He's great. The understatement of the century, but we have no other words. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is the emphasis of Luke here, is that Jesus came not only as the divine Son of God, fully God, but he came fully man. Luke actually is wanting to highlight, as we will see in subsequent chapters, he wants to highlight his humanity before he highlights the divinity, which he will do towards the end of his book. But he highlights the humanity to see that he is relational, to see that he cares for physical needs, and he preaches a gospel that touches spiritual and physical needs. He is fully human. And he fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah must come from the line of David. That's why Joseph is his father. Joseph adopting him. And in that culture, when you adopted, you get all the full legal rights. The royal line traveled through him. And so he got it through adoption. What a beautiful picture. But he also says that this Messiah will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Reign over the house of Jacob forever. The Messiah was to come to ransom a people. He came to the Jewish people. It doesn't say this in this passage, but we see it bear witness later that the Jewish people reject him. And so he sends Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles. And his last great words are, the people of God should go to the ends of the earth that my gospel might be known to all the peoples and that they might trust in me. But at the end of all things, there will be a remnant of Jewish people that will be his children. He will preserve a remnant. So it says here that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end forever, 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 forever. And as I was preparing for this message, I was struck. I was struck because we are in some turbulent political times. Agreed? That might be an understatement. <clears throat> well, the political times were as bad, if not worse, right here in Luke 1. Herod had been reigning for 40 years, known as Herod the Great, I might add. Self-proclaimed title. Reigned for 40 years. His treatment of children, you might want to even say his abortion standards rivaled those of the Democrats, And his bravado rivaled that of Trump's as they both seek to show how important they were by building buildings. He built temples. He built walls. This is Herod, that is. So there's a parallel. Herod, though, went a step beyond. He murdered his own wife, murdered some of his children, murdered some of his family members. You didn't want to be related to this guy. <laughs> He didn't want to cross him. This was the political times in which our Savior showed up on the scene. And 
let's just keep in mind, he had been reigning for 40 years. We have a four-year cycle where we can seek to try to right some wrongs if we desire. That's what our four years are for, to constantly address and re... There ain't no doing that here. It was in the family. His sons followed him. And you want to talk about this sense of religious liberty. It was tolerated until their power was in question. And then they just killed you off. There wasn't any. The times were shaky. How did God address it? What did he do? The Jews therefore expected him to send in our day the president of presidents, the just one of all just ones, the one who would go in and say, he is a wreck, get him out of there, and now I'm going to establish my kingdom and I will rule over this place and I will show you what justice is. And did he do that? No. He didn't send him to the biggest city. He sent him to Nazareth, to Bethlehem. He didn't send him as an adult to be a ruler, and he could have. He sent him as a baby to travel through a womb that he might learn through suffering, that he might get tired and sleepy, that he might pray and show submission. It is upside down. His military processional, his triumphant entry was on a borrowed donkey and his conversation was with some not-so-savvy followers in a borrowed room and his life ended in a borrowed tomb. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. That is how God chose to address this political climate. And so maybe we should be cautious when we believe the answer to the difficulties of our world, our first political involvement, maybe it's something else, something more subversive. It's called sacrificial love and day-to-day faithfulness. It's called looking like our Savior, and there's no maybe to it. This is the call of God to us in our day. Because, friends, throughout the history of the church, Light has always shone brighter the darker the canvas and backdrop of the culture has been. Just look at how the church advanced in Acts when they were too afraid, does sound familiar? Afraid to follow God. God brought persecution so that they would go to the ends of the earth. And because of that, it was not only for their good, but it was for ours that we might believe. Friends, how should we respond in our day? I'm going to make a few statements now that, are, that have politics as their subject matter, but I'm not speaking on policy. I'm not speaking about being a Republican or a Democrat. I'm going to be speaking about the persons. And I'm doing so because... It has been on everyone's mind. And it has evoked fear in so many people. And there's so much unknown and concern that I feel like as a pastor I need to address it. But I will never declare a political party to you because I want nothing to stand in the way of the beauty of the gospel. I want that to be your only stumbling block in this church. But some things do need to be said. We grieve. We grieve over the lack of character in these candidates. The sentiment and the rhetoric that went around in these campaigns, we grieve. And I'm going to speak about the person of President-elect Trump. He is not trustworthy. I do not trust him. The racial bigotry the misogyny, the lumping all of one race into all one bucket. Muslims are dangerous. Hispanics illegal. Immigrants bad. The last I checked, Christians were supposed to not prize distancing ourselves from the nations, but Christians actually were called to draw near to the nations in love for the sake of their hearts. Last I checked, that was the commission of the church. 
not to distance in fear, but to draw near in love. We must first be biblical before we are political. There's no way around that. The gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come. And the only way that it advances is when love is our aim and we say no to fear. But let's don't forget, there were also personal views of Hillary that were atrocious as well. Under the guise of choice, her desire to further legalize the slaughter of children, unborn babies, Friends, that is a crock that it is for women. You're killing women in the womb. Do not say that you're for all races when it is proven to be selectively killing more blacks than any other race when you are for abortion. It is garbage, and it must be said no to. Some of the best leaders that could be out there have been killed in the womb. Under the guise of choice, we should not stand by and make what is biblical political. Conception is when life begins. And we must be careful. So friends, I stand here with all that passion and I just smile at you. I smile at you. Because there is no need to be angry or upset at one another. And there is no need to fear, because here's what I do know. What I do know is we can be unified around a common Savior, despite our political views. And here's what I do know. My role is to pray for our new president. And that's what I'm going to do. And you know why? Because I trust my God more than I do my government. We pray That's what we do. And you know what else we do? We're faithful. So many people are bound up in fear, forecasting a future that, let's just be honest, we have no idea what the future holds, let alone for a man who has yet to tell a large truth and stayed with it very long. It is just a fact. Why forecast a future and be afraid of it? Jesus says there's another way a Christian should respond. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 through 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we became as consumed about our faithfulness day by day as we have been about our fears of the future, this world would be turned upside down. I know how to respond, and deep down you know how to respond. We pray And we fight for faithfulness day by day. And we do not allow the devil or any political movement to divide God's church. We are first family under the banner of Jesus. Way before we have any political affiliation. May we be unified. Please, please, may we be unified together and be family that radiate Jesus to the end of the earth. Friends, he's coming. And when he comes, he will establish a forever kingdom. And that's our hope. And until he does, he is doing a forever changing work in the hearts of the individual. And that's why this last word is so important. Our Savior came as one worthy of surrender. And it won't take long. It's just a sentence in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. What's her response? What's her response when she faces the impossible and God says, I can do whatever I wish for the glory of my name. When she is called to trust him for something that's bigger than she can do, what is her response? 
Her response is, I trust you. Let it be to me whatever you wish. That is beautiful. That is faith. I was reading a book this week, finishing it up, Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, and he says this as he's talking about the picture of full submission or the antithesis to full submission. He says this, but we must carry this always in our minds that that which is begun in self-confidence ends in shame. That which is when we take the reins of our lives ourselves and say, no, we can handle this. When we're characterized more by worry than by prayer. Self-confidence. When we seek to try to endeavor on things in our own strength and not have any mind towards God at all. Every time it will lead us eventually to shame. I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I would have listened to God. I wish I would have followed His own way. I wish I would have taken Him at His word. I wish I hadn't have questioned Him. Mary shows us the words to say, let it be to me according to your word because I trust your word and I trust your character. I trust who you are, God, that you are good and faithful. I want to fully submit my life to you. So friends, when you're facing the impossible or what you feel is impossible, remember this, our Savior came limited and it changed the world. Our Savior came through a virgin birth, and it confirms His word is true. Our Savior came to establish a forever kingdom. Long for that church, and do not fear. And our Savior came as one worthy of our surrender. So now, go fully love and fully follow wherever He leads. It will be the best path. It will be a path of your Savior with you in love. Let's pray.